Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And I've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, as many of you know. Some of you have been here from the very beginning of uh, this series. Others of you have added in at some point uh, along the way. And uh, the good thing is, I think it's been teaching us a lot about what it means to walk in surrender to Christ. That there are times that God wants to make changes in our lives. There are times that God wants to expose things we never saw. And times He wants to replace things that don't belong in our lives with something better. And, uh, and as we kind of move into this part of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11 especially, we start to see that the uh, focus shifts, not just from the individual, but also begins to include the body of Christ, the local church. And so a lot of what Paul's going to be dealing with, starting in chapter 11, is going to be dealing with churches just like ours. And uh, it's going to be in a setting of the church in Corinth, but it's going to have a lot of application for us. So chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And we'll jump here, jump in here in just a few moments. Now, if you've read the Bible for long, uh, for some of you, you've been reading it for years. Others of you, you've just kind of started getting into it. But if you've read the Bible for long at all, what you find is there's one big overarching story. And uh, the, the story begins with God having created us. He created us to know Him. He created us to enjoy Him. He created us to have a relationship with him. But in the third chapter of that big old book you got sitting in your lap, just the third chapter, what you find is, is that things went terribly wrong. Not because God was out of control, but because God gives us as his creation the freedom to make choices. And so in just the third chapter of that big book you've got there sitting on your lap, uh, in the third chapter of Genesis, we find that mankind sinned. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden. They had one command, don't eat of a certain tree that God had put there. And it was that one command <laughs> they had problems with, that one command they couldn't obey. And uh, when I was a little kid and I was first learning about the Bible, you know, I kind of put the pieces together in my mind. And I thought, you know, when I get to heaven, yeah, I'm going to have some words with Adam and Eve because they blew it for the rest of us. But, but the understanding really is all of us would have done the same thing we all would have committed the same sin. We're, we have a tendency, don't we, to kind of push the boundaries. We have a tendency to, to, to push the limits. We have a tendency to see how close we can get to the line, and we have a real tendency to cross the line a lot of times as well. And so sin came in. In the third chapter of, of Scripture, we find that sin came. Now, God had a choice to make, and the choice was whether or not to uh, completely eliminate his creation or to allow his creation to continue on in that state or to offer hope. And so he opted to offer hope. And uh, that hope came in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, who chose to come on our behalf. He left heaven and all of its perfection, and he took on flesh and blood, and he ultimately stepped into a world that was filled with sin, and he ultimately gave his own life. And that life was given willingly. That life was given out of his great love for you and his great love for me. And it was given so that we can have an opportunity ultimately to know God as well. That when we turn from our sin... And when we decide we don't want sin to characterize us anymore, and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that so that's one movement, we lay down our sin, and we place our faith in Christ. When we do that and we surrender to Jesus, man, I'm telling you, everything changes. That instantly, at that point, we are made right in the sight of God. Now, everything I've just shared with you is the gospel. It's what they call the gospel. When you hear that term, the gospel, that's what it is. That we've sinned, that we blew it, that God loved us enough to come and pay for it, that in the person of Jesus, he died in our place, he rose again, and that every person who lays down our sin and invites Jesus to come in, forgive us, and take over, that when we do that, that we're right with God from that point forever. That is the message of the gospel. Now, let me just say this, that there are some of you, you've heard that message so many times. You were raised in church. You were taken to church nine months before you were ever born. You've never been out of church ever since. You have been so accustomed to hearing that message that I just proclaimed in about 90 seconds that it completely has lost its impact in your life. There are some who are here, right here, the same in our 9 o'clock service, that might have been just about as big as this one as well. 
that there are some that you have become so accustomed to the to scripture, so accustomed to God, so accustomed to, to your relationship with him, that no longer does the gospel hold that sense of wonderment for you. It didn't hold you in awe anymore. You've just kind of gone your own way. And, and church doesn't mean much. Reading the Bible doesn't mean much. And you don't do it like you used to. Obeying God doesn't really mean a whole lot. And for you, you're no longer characterized. Even though you have a relationship with him, the gospel has lost its clutch in your life. Well, what we're going to see this morning is when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, there is something that God has done to enable Christians that I've just described to maintain that, that passion, to maintain that closeness, and to maintain that sense of perspective. For others of you here this morning, you've never lost that sense of wonderment. I mean, you were still as excited about your relationship with Christ as you were 20 years ago when he drug you out of a gutter and he replaced that old life you had with a brand new one. You've never gotten over it. You've never gotten over your salvation. Well, God has given us as a church something in Scripture that is enabling for those who who are still in love with him to see that love grow even deeper so that we don't become complacent, so that we don't become so used to it that it loses its grip. And then there are some here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ. You've given it some thought. You've considered it. You've kind of held it up to the light, and you've, you've turned it a couple of different angles, and you're looking at what it costs you to give your life to Christ. You're looking at whether or not the evidence you've seen other people who know Christ is really genuine or not. You're considering a life of, of your own, surrendered to Christ, but you've not made that decision yet. Well, God has given the church something, we're going to see it in chapter 11, that enables us to be a witness to those who are amongst us in the setting of worship. We're going to read about that today in chapter 11. Here's what we find in Scripture. If you read the Bible as a whole, especially the New Testament, especially after the Gospels, what you find is is that there are two observances that God gives us, two observances that Jesus passed down to the church for us to observe. Many of those, two, for many of you, you're familiar with those observances. One is the observance of baptism, and the other is the observance called the Lord's Supper. Now, whenever you read in Scripture, what you'll find is that baptism is put in place for the purpose of signifying that a person has given their life to Christ. How many of you have ever been baptized after having become a Christian? Let me see your hand, all right? So many of you have. Not everybody could raise your hand, but many of you have been baptized. What you did was, and I try to illustrate this every time we do a baptism here, it's kind of a little teaching moment, but what you did when you were baptized is that you signified as a symbol without even saying a word, you signified that you were proud to be a follower of Christ. That baptism didn't save you, but what it symbolized was a one-time beginning, right? A one-time beginning of a relationship with Christ that will never end. That's why in the Bible, you don't see people getting baptized over and over and over to where they were saved once, and so they're going to show that and be baptized. Well, then they lost their salvation, and then they got re-saved again, so they get re-baptized. You don't see that. The reason for that is because once you have a relationship with God, you have it forever. It is eternal life. It can't be lost. And so baptism doesn't save you, but it shows and it pictures, it pictures for, for those who witness it that that person has already begun a relationship with God that will never end. That's one observance. The, the Bible says for, for believers to uh, obediently take that step into baptism. Well, there's a second observance in the Bible as well that is passed on to the church, and that's the Lord's Supper. How many of you have ever been a part of a Lord's Supper service? Let me see your hand, all right? Many of you have ever been here in the past quarter, then you've been a part of a Lord's Supper service. That is a second observance. Now, listen closely. I call those observances for a reason. They're not sacraments. A sacrament is believed to bestow some form of grace on your life. Baptism 
doesn't make you right with God. It does not save you. Taking of the Lord's Supper does not make you right with God. It does not save you. They are not sacraments that somehow pour grace into your life. They are observances, two very important observances. And what we find here in chapter 11, the reason I say all this, is that Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, is dealing with the topic of the Lord's Supper. And as we get to chapter 11, what we find here is that there are big, big issues in the worship of this within the church in Corinth. And the issues that they have, Paul is going to begin to deal with here in chapter 11. From the time we get to chapter 11, almost the whole end of the, of the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's dealing with worship stuff. He's dealing with church getting together corporately, coming together as one body, and he's dealing with issues in that church. So I really want you to be here for these weeks to come. Because what we're going to find, if you're part of this ministry at all, if you are a member here, if you're a regular attender, if you're invested in this ministry, a lot of what Paul's going to be saying here from this point on is going to have direct implications for us as the body of Christ. And so Paul is dealing today in chapter 11 with their practice of the Lord's Supper. So let me just give you a, a principle real quickly. Then we're going to begin to walk through this, uh, th- this part of chapter 11. And I hope you'll jot this down because it's so important. The principle is this, that wrapped up in the Lord's Supper celebration, wrapped up in all of that, I'm going to explain what it is in just a few moments, wrapped up in all of that is ultimately a picture of unity. Unity vertically between the Christian and God and unity horizontally between Christians one to another. And so whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated, what you see there is that picture. It's a picture of unity vertically between the believer and God and horizontally between believers one to another. Now, you may be wondering, well, well Brooks, why are, <laughs> you know, this would have been a really good place for us to have the Lord's Supper. I don't see a table down here. I don't see the stuff. You know, w- did you forget to tie the two together? Or what, what's going on? Well, I thought about that. I, in fact, I thought when we did the Lord's Supper a, a few weeks ago to uh, postpone it until we got to this chapter, I decided not to. Because typically when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we only have, I have about 10 minutes, maybe 15 tops for, to, to be able to do that and still be able to have our time of worship and to actually take the Lord's Supper. Today I decided I'm just going to preach on the topic, going to have my 30 minutes or so, and uh, hopefully take us a little bit deeper so that the next time we take the Lord's Supper, we understand a little better, a little more fully exactly what it's all about. Part of that is understanding that wrapped up in the Lord's Supper, every time it's celebrated, is a picture, it's an emphasis on the unity between the believer and God and between believers themselves. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in here. We're going to begin in chapter 11, verse 17, and we're going to finish out <clears throat> chapter 11 this morning, and uh, tomorrow we'll be jumping in to our tomorrow. If you want to come back, I'll be here so we can have a service, I guess. But next Sunday, <laughs> yeah, a little advance, yeah, beat the crowds, all right? Uh, next Sunday will be chapter 12. And, uh, and then the following Sunday will be Easter. We'll have a brand new uh, uh, series starting for that. All right, so chapter 11. Let's jump in beginning in verse 17, and I'll explain as we go and then make application at the end. Chapter, seven, or chapter 11, verse 17. If you don't have your Bibles, you can read with me on the overhead right there in front of you. And uh, verse 17 begins. It says, but in giving this instruction, Paul says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Imagine for a moment that Paul himself, all right, he is the writer of over half of the New Testament. I mean, you read about his dramatic uh, coming to Christ in Acts chapter 9. Imagine that the Apostle Paul, greatest missionary who ever lived, the guy who wrote the, the, most of the New Testament, that he comes here and he visits 
our services, let's say for four weeks. And imagine that when you come in, you're sitting down, you know, hey, how you doing? Uh, I've never met you before. Uh, how long have you been here? First Sunday. What's your name? Paul. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you just kind of get to, you know, you get to kind of wondering, who is this guy? He's dressed a little differently. You, you finish the service, you go on to, you know, the, or between services, you go to the, you know, the little fellowship time we have where we've got coffee and food and all that kind of stuff set out. And imagine you bump into him there because he's just checking things out. He's in your Sunday school class. He answers all the questions right, especially about the New Testament. He gets all of them right. And just for four weeks, you just see him. I mean, he's always around here. And after the four weeks is done, we all know who it is. And imagine maybe a couple of months later, we get a letter in the mail. And, I, and I'm excited because it's come right here to our church, and it's got, you know, his, his name on the back of it, and I rip it open, and I'm standing up in front of everybody. It's a Sunday morning. I say, guys, listen, we've got a letter from Paul. You know, he was here for four weeks, and he evaluated all of our services, and he heard me preach, and he heard you sing, and he listened to our choir, and he went to some Sunday school classes, and he watched how we interact with each other. Here's what he's going to say about us. And I, and I rip open the letter, and the first line says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. But how would that go? I mean, like, we're thinking lead balloon here, right? That would not be very, very commendable. And yet Paul is writing this letter, and he gets to this part of the letter, and this is what he says to this church. He says, when you get together, it is not a good thing. I mean, things are not going well. So much so that i got a bunch of stuff I could say, but I've only got a limited amount of parchment to write on, and I'm going to deal with this one because it's that important. Verse 18, he says, for in the first place... (laughs) Yeah, anytime you get, you know, you get tore into, and they say, the, it, for the first, in the first place, just, just sit down, you know, just, if your boss calls you in and says, things are not going well, our company is worse because you're here, uh, number one, just go ahead and sit, just sit, because there's a two and a three and a four and a five, more like, Paul says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Verse 19, he's a little bit sarcastic in a way. He says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, you like walking around judging each other and holding each other up to a scale that you've got in place. You need to know who's approved and who's not approved. You need to know who's in and who's out amongst you. I guess if you're going to do that, he says, then you know, there have to be divisions and factions. If you're going to accomplish that, then you've got to have your little cliques. In the Greek language, that word divisions literally means that. It means cliques. It's a lot like when you were back in grade school and you had that group of students, you know, that were kind of this group or maybe middle school or high school or maybe even in your workplace for that, for that matter. You got this little group here and then you got a little group over here and you got a little group over there and this group doesn't talk to that group and that group can't be seen with that group and that group, who knows what they're doing, nobody cares in any way. You know, it's funny how a lot of that seeps into the church, doesn't it? You ever been in churches like that? You ever been in one of those little groups, didn't get talked to by the other groups? A lot of that happens. What Paul's saying is, is this is rampant in your church in, in the city of Corinth. And I'll be willing to say as well, it's rampant in many, many churches that dot the landscape of this country in which we live especially. It seems like churches have a real tendency to draw lines. And when you draw those lines, there are those on one side and those on the other. Churches today often draw those lines across racial boundaries, sad to say. As has been said many times, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is often the most segregated time in our country. Even in worship, often those lines exist. Churches today will draw lines according to socioeconomic status, how much you make and what you don't make, where you work, where you don't work. Draw lines according to where you live, what neighborhood you live in, what you drive, you know, where, who, what people you know, who you run with, who you hang with, those kind of things. 
You draw lines according to marital status. You got those that say, well, our church is only for married people. And in that same church, you got people that say, well, our church is only for single people. And you know, all these lines that are drawn. Here's what I wish. I wish that today what, what characterized the body of Christ were not all those lines, but just really maybe one. Here are those who know Jesus and know him passionately and are pursuing him with all their hearts. And on the other side of the line are those who've never met him before and need to hear about him. And I would hope those on this side are pole vaulting over that line to pursue those with a passion and with every ounce of, a, of, a, of love that they could have so that those on this side that don't know him could know him on, as those on the other side. Does that make sense? I mean, I wish that was the only line that existed. What Paul's saying is, <laughs> that, that's not even in play here. I mean, if you've been reading this letter all the way through, you're causing each other to stumble, you're taking each other to court, there's immorality running rampant, you've got all your little factions and cliques and divisions everywhere, and now, not a surprise, it's filtering into your worship. Let's go on to the next slide, verse uh, 20. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One's hungry and another's drunk. That, that may seem a little out of the box for some of us today because of the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper in our culture. In the first century, they had what was often called, called an agape feast or a love feast. Agape is the Greek word for unconditional love. And what that feast was, it's, it's reminiscent of what Jesus did in the Gospels with his disciples in Luke 22. For the sake of time, we won't read that today. But it was an actual feast. It was a meal that took place where they would sit down. The body of Christ, believers, would have a common meal together. And then the, the, that meal would culminate. It, it, would, it would reach its pinnacle as they would celebrate the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of it. Just a very moving time. And they would do this together. And so here's what's happening in Corinth. You can tell this by reading this part of the letter. <clears throat> there were those who would come to this meal. And man, it was like the buffet is open, right? And they would come, and it was as if they had not eaten all week long. Well, you had different groups of people. You had some that had much, and you had some that had nothing. And what you were seeing here in this church was that whenever the feast would take place where the body of Christ should be unified and should be able to leverage that time together for good, what was happening was you had some that were coming in, and they were just gorging themselves, eating all the food, leaving nothing for those that were in need. And then when it was time to, to, to drink, then there were those that were drinking to excess and others that didn't have anything at all. And Paul, Paul says, look at what he says in verse 22. He says, what? Do you, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. I mean, th this was big business here. Th this was serious stuff. And, and here's the tendency for us that when we come to the Lord's Supper... I am not going to ask for a show of hands for this, but how many times have you come in and you see the table and the bread and the juice and it's obviously Lord's Supper Sunday and you've thought to yourself, oh man, I brought some friends with me today. How many times have you, has your heart not dropped when you've come and you've realized, oh, Lord's Supper today. I wish we were having a regular service. See, this is, this is serious, serious stuff for Paul. This is worship, and he's, he's going to begin to tell why. Let's move on to the next slide, to the next verse. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, I didn't make this up. It goes all the way back to Jesus himself. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, if you want to see the shadow of it. He says that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Next slide. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Now let's leave that verse up there for just a moment. Uh, let me touch on a couple things that are important here. There, there are two, two components to the Lord's Supper. Uh, you may have had the Lord's Supper in a different tradition, different denominational background. There are two components. One is the bread. That bread, according to this passage, represents the body of Jesus. It's representational. It is symbolic. There is also the cup. Some denominations will use wine. Others, as ours does, will use uh, grape juice. It never says wine or juice. It says the fruit of the vine. It says the cup. That's how New Testament uh, uh, speaks of it. And so there's the bread representing the body of Christ. There's the the cup uh, or the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, how do we celebrate this? We celebrate this in remembrance of him. Now, some of you come out of a background. I don't slam denominations and other... Well, I slam other religions sometimes because they set themselves up against Jesus. But some of you come out of a different background where maybe it's a Catholic background, and for you, the Lord's Supper meant something completely different than what the New Testament says. And you've always been puzzled by that because you've always been told by the priest that somehow, uh, in, in, a, in a literal sense, that bread is transformed. The, the theological term is transubstantiation. It's transformed literally into the body of Jesus. And you've been taught, maybe for those of you out of a Catholic background, that by the priest, that that that, that wine is not is not the uh, it's not just wine. Somehow the priest does a blessing and he does his thing there, and, and it literally is transformed into the blood of Jesus. Some of you've been taught that. That's what you, your understanding is. You don't find that in the Bible anywhere. In fact, the the biblical picture of the Lord's Supper is that it is symbolic. Jesus said it himself. Paul said it. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 22. It is in remembrance of him. It is a symbol. I have on my desk, well, let me give a little bit of a backstory. Um, Years ago, before we were ever even married, Susie and I were down at at Tybee one afternoon, and um, we'd just gone down there to walk on the beach and uh, I forget what time of year it was. It wasn't spring or summer, it seems. And uh, so we were down there, and I had my camera. This was before we married. This was years ago. And uh, <laughs> it was my camera I had when I was in seminary. It was about this long and that big, and it was one of those where you go, remember those? That's like dinosaurs, right? And uh, so I had one of those. And so we were walking out of over the, one of the streets there, walking over the, the boardwalk, and um, I said, stop right there. I had black and white film on my camera. I was like Mr. Photographer, right? I you know, got it from CVS or whatever. Thought I was like Mr. Photo Man. And so I had my little, hold on. I had to get ready for the next picture. All right, I said, stay right there. So I got this, got this picture of her. And it, was, it has ever since then been one of my all-time favorite pictures of her. It sits on my desk. And, uh, and I've got it right here. I wear it as a necklace often. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> And so I've got this picture, and it sits on my desk. And uh, now if I were to show you, if, who, so who is this? That's not Susie. You crazy? This is a frame with a two-dimensional photograph. And so, this is not Susie, right? Some of you said, that's not, she's working in the preschool right now. She was in first service. She's, like, she's about like five, seven. Or, this is not her. Well, what did you say? Well, that's Susie. I mean, you understand the difference, right? This is a symbol, a representation of her. That's what this is. You know, when we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the bread doesn't somehow transform into the literal body of Jesus. The, the, the cup doesn't transform to the literal blood of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is symbolic. It's symbolic. But it's extremely significantly symbolic. You know, every time I see that, see that picture, you know what it reminds me? That there's someone who loves me like nobody else on this earth. That there's someone I'm committed to like nobody else on this earth. And that I'm going to see her again real soon. You know what the Lord's Supper teaches us? 
that every time we take it, for us once a quarter, every time you take it, that if you take it with the right attitude, the right heart, what it teaches you is that there is a Savior who loves you like no one else in this world. And that there is a Savior for you to be committed to above all others in this world. And the day is coming when you will see him again real, real soon. And so Paul speaks extremely, in in extremely significant language about the Lord's Supper. He says the bread is representational of the body of Jesus given for us. The the, the cup is representational of the the blood of Jesus shed for us. And we do it in remembrance of him. Go on to the next verse, verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance. You know, you remember the Live Strong, you know, bracelets? They sold really well up until a couple years ago uh, for obvious reasons for Lance Armstrong. Yeah, you got bracelets like that, you wear them, you know, and they remind you of something significant. The Lord's Supper is a reminder, it's a remembrance. But it's also a proclamation. It's like this wedding ring that I wear. I don't have to say anything. It just proclaims without saying a word that I'm married. It proclaims I'm committed to someone. And the Lord's Supper does the same thing. It is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of Jesus. It's a proclamation of the gospel. And every time that you take of it, there are going to be people who don't know Jesus seated around you, in, in this church at least. And they're going to see, man, that's a person who's a believer. They didn't say a word, but they're taking the Lord's Supper. And that's only for believers. And they're going to begin to match your life up with your taking of the Lord's Supper. It's a proclamation. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, whoever takes it frivolously shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. The Greek word there for examine means to put yourself on trial. (laughs) He must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Here's the picture, that when we come... Celebrating the Lord's Supper as believers, it's not just a remembrance of what Christ did for us. It's not just a proclamation that we belong to him, he belongs to us. But it is also a warning. It is a warning to every believer not to just breeze past this and to not give it the the respect that it's due. But this is a checkpoint in my life so that when I take of the bread and I take of the cup, representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ remembering what he's done for me, remembering of what it costs for me to have a spot waiting for me in heaven, remembering what it costs for me to be able to close my eyes and say, dear father, and he hears me, remembering what it costs to know that my bad has worked out for good, remembering what it costs that whenever I go through a trial, I never walk alone, remembering the cost of all of that. What the Lord's Supper does four times a year in this church is it takes me to a place of inventory so that I can put myself on trial, examine myself, so that in light of what he's done for me, I'm able to seek to walk then in a way that puts him on display clearly. Now, how awesome it is, right? Because we have a tendency to wander. How awesome it is that four times a year, we can do it every Sunday if we wanted, but that God has built in to the fabric of the local church that we constantly, consistently remember, proclaim, and take inventory. And it's through this called the Lord's Supper. Verse, 20, uh, verse 30. He says, for this reason, because you've not taken this seriously, because you've, you've uh, not taken it in the right manner, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's a reference ultimately to death. Verse 31. He says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord 
so that we'll not be condemned along with the world. Now, you may be thinking, so what's this talk about judgment? I thought Jesus took that for me on the cross. I thought Romans 8 says there's, there now for, uh, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're exactly right. The picture there is not as much judgment regarding eternal wrath. It's, it's talking about discipline. That's why Paul says at the end, when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. And so we come to the Lord's Supper table reverently. We come taking inventory. We come proclaiming. We come remembering. We do it with a, with a clear conscience, confessing those things that come between us and God. It's not legalistic. We're not jumping through a bunch of hoops here. In fact, it's the Lord's Supper that reminds us of our ongoing fellowship with God. And there are times that he'll use that to discipline us, to draw us back to where he wants us to be. Verse 33 and verse 34. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, <laughs> wait for one another. We don't go jumping in there and eating up everything. It's not designed for that. If that's what this is to you, then eat at home. This is a time for unity. This is a time to have a common meal together. Remember, the Lord's Supper celebration ultimately pictures unity horizontally one to another and unity vertically between us and God. He says, so wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So what Paul has done, I know it sounded kind of like a little lecture this morning. I don't like to do that, but there's a lot of info I wanted you to have today. But what Paul has done is he's addressed an issue in this local church, the church in Corinth, that was so significant that their worship was being impacted. And as he addresses it, he reminds them of their unity with God through Christ and the unity they're to have together as part of the body of Christ. How often do we come to this time when we take of the Lord's Supper and our heart sinks because we see the bread and the juice and the table? How often do we come to this time with the Lord's Supper and we tend to treat it less than any other service that we have when it seems like Scripture puts it on a pedestal and says this is the time built into who you are to remember who I am and what I've done, who I've made you and that I'm coming back, that I love you and you're to love me like no other in this world. March 22nd, 1933 was a a dark day in history. A concentration camp known by the name Dachau was opened run by the Nazis during World War II. Through its 12-year existence, this prison concentration camp would ultimately set the stage. It would become the model for all other concentration camps that would be open throughout World War II. Things that would happen on the grounds of that particular concentration camp, history has recorded, but no one likes to revisit. People that would be subjected to medical experiments, forced labor, torture, and, of course, execution as well. By the time the 12 years had run up until it was shut down and closed and the war was ended, uh, over 188,000 people had been incarcerated there, thousands upon thousands. History does not even know how many lost their life in that particular concentration camp. Today there's a museum that sits pretty much on that site. I've never had the privilege of visiting there to see the lives that were given But I've read accounts of the photographs that exist there that capture a dark part of our history in this world, but a part of history that can't be forgotten. There's one photograph there in that museum. It's a picture of a woman who, uh, who was in line for the gas chamber. 
she has in front of her her little girl, her daughter, school age. And as they stand in line for the gas chamber, the mother standing in back knows what's coming. The little girl in front has no idea. The photograph captured at that very point that that mother did what only a loving mother could do. She had placed her hands over the eyes of that little girl to shield her from seeing what was to come. They say that when people come through that museum, that they get to that photograph and they don't breeze by very quickly. They say when people come to that particular photo that they stop and they linger and they gaze and they think. They say that you can almost read the minds of those folks that says, Oh God, please don't let that be the end. You know what the Lord's Supper teaches us? That we look at a sacrifice, a body and blood that was shed. And as we take of that and we remember as part of the body of Christ, what it reminds us is that Savior named Jesus who gave himself there would three days later rise again. And the time is coming when he'll return for all those who know him. And those who know Jesus will stand before him not as judge, but as Savior. And what the Lord's Supper teaches us and reminds us is that through every temptation we face on this earth, through every difficulty that we have to endure, through every uh, trial and challenge and loss, that this is not the end. That because of what Jesus has done for us, the moment we give our lives to him, follow him as Savior. It's really only the beginning. For when our eyes close in death on this side, (laughs) they open in life like never known before on the other. It's all because of a Savior who saw your need, who came for you, who paid it all. And as we remember and as we proclaim and as we take inventory, we do it not for us, but for Him. Do you know Him today? I hope if you do, not only the next Lord's Supper, but every day will be lived in celebration of what He's done for you, of who He is. And if you don't, no better time than now, right where you sit, to see your sin for the last time and to set it aside and to say, Lord Jesus, would you come and even forgive me and take over to be my Savior and my Lord from this day forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that gives us the tracks to run on in regards to worship. Lord, thank you that the Lord's Supper is not, it's just, it's not just another service. It's not something we're just to blow past flippantly. But Lord, it is designed for us to see you It's designed for us to remind ourselves of the unity that we're to have with you, that we must walk with you fully yielded, but also the unity we need to have with one another. God, that there's no place for uh, animosity, for unforgiveness, for bitterness, for hostility, anger. There's no place for preferential treatment and treating uh, others less than what we would want to be treated as. Lord, it's the Lord's Supper that reminds us that we as believers are part of the same body of Christ. And so, God, whether we actually take of it today or not, may we remember the truths that are there, the blessing of our unity because of Christ in us, our unity with you, that you're not at odds with us, God, that we are in relationship with you, but, Lord, also that we're called to be in relationship with one another. And so, God, I pray that whatever decisions are made today, maybe sin that needs to be put away, things that need to be confessed to you, Lord, or maybe some relationships one to another that need to be put back together again. Lord, help us to do what we need to do. And for those that don't know you, give them the courage, Lord, right where they sit today.
to genuinely invite Jesus himself, God who came for them, to forgive them and to take over. And so, Lord, bless our decisions, we ask. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.